Well, hello there. So good to see you. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to hang out there this morning. We're kicking off a brand new series all about marriage called So... Dot, dot, dot. This is love. So I have to say it too, right? The punctuation in there, those dot, dot, dots to pause, right? And it is a question. So this is love. And here's the deal. It's, it's easy to fall in love. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, chances are you didn't have to try very hard when you fell in love with your spouse. Guys, you maybe had to work a little harder to get the lady to notice you, but you didn't have to try. In fact, it only takes, it takes one thing to fall in love. You know what it is? A pulse, right? You got a pulse, you can fall in love. It's never been easier to fall in love either. In fact, there are like 1,500 different organizations all dedicated right now to helping you fall in love. So it's never been easier. But at the same time, it's never been harder for us to stay in love. And the divorce rate is at an all-time high, whether it's in the church or on the outside of the church. It's sort of normal now, right? We, we, we live in a culture where it doesn't have a, a huge, a high threshold for pain. So like, particularly relationally. So when things get difficult, get rocky in a relationship, we just bail, we just quit. And one of the messages we hear all the time is say, if you're unhappy in your relationship, then chances are you just picked the wrong person. So what you need to do is get out of that relationship and go fall in love with somebody else all over again. So it's never been easier for us to fall in love, but at the same time, it's never been harder for us to stay in love. But here's the thing, we all still want it. I mean, no matter how buried it is under heartache, maybe even it's become cynicism towards the whole thing. There's something inside of all of us that wants to experience the kind of love that lasts, the kind of love that sticks around. We even believe it's possible. This is why we, you know, we stand and we applaud for the couples who've been married for longer than 50 years, right? You see them and it's like, wow. We want to believe that it's possible, not only for them, but it's possible for us. We all long to experience the kind of love that lasts. And so the question we're going to be wrestling with throughout this series is what does it take? What does it take to cultivate the type of love, the type of marriage that sticks around? How do you stay in love? Now, the majority of us in this room are in one of two places as it relates to marriage. You either are currently married right now and you're in the midst of it or you hope one day to be married. So even if you're single, do me a favor, don't check out. Don't check out. Pay attention, lean in, take notes. One of the biggest reasons why marriages struggle is because of the baggage we bring into them. Somebody better say amen to that. Right? Either, either we, maybe we never had a healthy picture of what a, what a marriage looks like, or we've got these sort of faulty paradigms in terms of how we think the whole thing works. So pay attention. Take notes. I promise the future you, the future version of you will be glad that you did. Same time, I can imagine there are people in this room right now who maybe you're in the midst of divorce. Maybe you're on the other side of divorce, and all of this is a little awkward for you. I promise you, this, this series will still be healing and helpful for you. We're going to work really hard to make sure that it is. And I want to encourage you to take advantage of Divorce Care. Support group is kicking off next week in Divorce Care for Kids. These support groups have helped so many folks. And we want to come alongside you in this really difficult season of life so that you can know divorce doesn't have to have the last word or final say. Because Jesus Christ has the last word or the final say. But those of you who are familiar with divorce... I have to believe that there's a part of you that wishes that maybe somebody back then 
would have taken the time to share with you the kind of stuff we're going to talk about during the series. And I can imagine that there's even a part of you that wishes you would have listened. So I want to invite you to join me in praying for the couples in our community, in our church. So I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of couples who are struggling. That's why we're doing this series. As a pastoral staff, we got together as we approached the new year. What's the one thing we feel like our people need to hear? And we felt like we need to spend some time talking about marriage. Because there's a lot of you. I've talked with you. I'm seeing you right now. We've talked. It's hard. So I believe that this series is going to be very, very important for our church and our community. So with that being said, before we go any further, let's just take a moment, remind ourselves God is with us and that God has something to say. Will you all pray with me? God, I recognize that you're here. And I'm sure that there are people in this room who are coming to this place, to this time of worship from all sorts of different places. Some of us are uh, right in the midst of falling in love. So we're floating on clouds. Some of us have been married for a while. We're knee deep in dirty diapers, routines, expectations. It's not as fun as it used to be. Some of us have lost it altogether. No matter where we're at, I pray that you speak to us this morning. Help me be faithful to the message you've given me. And I pray that all of us leave here a little different than we walked in. We love you so much. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Because without him, we'd be lost. In your name we pray, amen. So my wife and I, who's here right now, hey baby, it's good to see you. My wife and I, we had, a, we had a long distance relationship the entire time we dated and all throughout our engagement. We dated here in South Carolina, but then like two days after we got engaged, I moved 600 miles away to Ohio. Fellas, this is a great way to do it, right? Seriously, get engaged, then get out of the state and let her plan the entire wedding. It's great. You don't have to worry about anything. Just kidding. But we, we, we didn't live in the same town until we lived in the same house which made for a really interesting first couple of years of marriage, right? And during our engagement, we went through some premarital counseling and we had to take this assessment. And this assessment, it sort of gave us uh, our expectations. Like, how did we view marriage? Like, what were our expectations coming in to, to the marriage relationship? And the assessment said that my wife and I were both off the charts in what is called idealistic distortion which essentially meant that we, we looked at our relationship and one another through rose-colored glasses, right? We thought that one another in our relationship was way better than it probably actually was, which is easy to do, right, when you, when you have a long-distance relationship. It's easy to think somebody's amazing when you don't have to talk to them every day, right, when you don't have to be around them every day. That's easy, but my, oh, my, how things change when you start living under the same roof, right? And, and, and your worlds, which operate according to different rules. Who knows what I'm talking about? These worlds start to collide. Am I right? I remember, like, like in my world, one of the rules is, you know, your shoes and your clothes belong just wherever you happen to take them off that day, right? In my wife's world, this is definitely not the case. Everything has a place, right? This is an important rule in her world. I learned that very quickly. Or like in my world on Monday nights, we watch football. We watch Monday night football. In her world, on Monday nights, you watch what? Who knows? The Bachelor, right? <laughs> and so we had to compromise. We watched The Bachelor together. <laughs> <laughs> Fellas, a new season just started. I'll pray for you. You pray for me, right? 
And this is what happens, right? It maybe, maybe took a year for those rose-colored glasses to come off. First year was great. Second year, it's like she suddenly realized, you moved me 600 miles away from all of my family and all my friends to Ohio, right? It was different. Things got a little difficult. In fact, I remember our first big fight was right around Christmas, and it had to do with how we were going to decorate the tree. You know, in her mind, she wants like you know, the Southern living Christmas tree where everything matches, I think coordinates, not me. I'm like old-fashioned Clark W. Griswold family Christmas tree. Like the junk drawer threw up on the tree. That's what I want, right? The gaudier, the better. It's like our first really big fight. But we, we're coming up on eight years of marriage. I know it's not long according to some of the marriages in the room. But you all know the, how the saying goes, right? Seven-year itch. And it's really weird when people your age start getting divorced. That's kind of where we're living right now. Right? And for us, our eight years together have been marked by change, constant change. I'm not talking about little change, I'm talking about big major changes, like moving out of the state, new careers, new directions in terms of the ministry we feel like God's called us to. Not to mention the fact that we've had three kids, they're five and under in eight years. They say marital satisfaction drops by 70% with the first child. Of course it does. We're talking about sleep deprivation, lack of privacy, right? Changing diapers all the time. Then you're supposed to have a romantic relationship on top of that. It's hard. It's difficult. I mean, you know how it is. You go into marriage, right? With these sort of lofty ideals, these rose colored glasses, and then life happens, doesn't it? Issues with extended family. It's hard, isn't it? Amen. There we go. Y'all are awake. Come on. It's tough. Life happens and it can leave us asking that question. So this, this is love. This is what it is. That's what we're going to be wrestling with. What does it take? What does it take to cultivate the kind of marriage, the kind of love that lasts? But I'm going to go back to that phrase, idealistically distorted. Well, I forgot to tell you, by the way, she's here. My wife's actually going to join me one weekend up on stage. She's going to preach with me. So I'm really excited about that. She'll get to tell you all about who I really am, which will be wonderful. And now that I just said it, she's got to do it. That's why, that's why I did that. I love you, baby. <laughs> idealistically distorted, though, that phrase, it's stuck with me ever since. We went through premarital counseling. I used to think it was a bad thing. I mean, it sounds like a bad thing, right? Distorted. That's not a really nice way of putting it. Distorted. I do this thing distorted. But here's what I'm discovering. I'm discovering that it's not actually a bad thing. In fact, when it comes to having the type of love that lasts, it's a completely necessary thing. What I want to talk to you this morning is about guarding the woe. Can you all say, whoa? Say it with me. You ready? Whoa. Yeah. Guarding the woe, talking about protecting, guarding, cherishing, nurturing, that sense of awe and wonder, that deep sense of gratitude and appreciation for our spouse. Because we're gonna spend the next six weeks going in all sorts of different directions, but here's what I know. If we aren't on the same page when it comes to that, none of it matters. Look with me at Genesis chapter two. Way back in the beginning, Genesis is all the way to the left, in case you were wondering, chapter too. This is, this is, God has created this beautiful world, right? It's beautiful. In fact, the word that God uses to describe it is what? It's good, right? And when God calls something good, it's not just kind of good. I mean, it's as good as it gets. So everything is as it should be. It's paradise. 
And God creates his first human being and he places him in the middle of it. And he said, here's creation. Now I want you to steward it. I want you to shepherd it. I want you to take care of it. I want you to develop it. Now remember, everything is as it should be. But notice what happens next. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is what? Not good for the man to be alone. Keep in mind, chapter three hasn't happened yet. There's been no apple. There's been no rebellion. There's no sin. There's nothing broken in creation. Yet God is looking at this picture and he says it's not good for the man to be alone. Of course it's not. I mean, God has just made this human being in God's own image. And as Christians, followers of Jesus, we believe that our God is best understood as Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? How somehow God is us all three and yet somehow one, right? So God is his three in oneness. I have never heard anybody, I'm, I'm in seminary right now, I've never heard anybody explain this in a way that it makes sense. Like the best we can come up with is God's kind of like an egg. You got the shell, the yolk, right? And then the egg whites. I'm like really, that's the best we can come up with? God's kind of like an egg, right? Bottom line is, we don't get how this works, how God is somehow three and yet one, but we can be sure of what it means. This is the important part. God isn't just in a relationship. God is relationship. God is connection. God is community. I mean, God is a deeply relational being, and you and I, we've been made in the image of this relational God, which makes us deeply relational Creatures. And so Adam has been made, this human being has been made with this deep need for connection, for companionship, to be fully known and to fully know somebody else. God sees that. God knows that. God recognizes it. But then notice what happens next. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Here's the important part. But for Adam, no suitable helper, companion, partner, equal was found. So God recognizes Adam's got this deep need for connection, for companionship. But then the next thing God does, instead of meeting that need, he tells Adam to go name all the animals. Which is no small task, by the way. It's like we picture this in our brains like a conveyor belt, right? Animals just coming, dog, pony, hip-hop anonymous, Kim, whatever, right? I mean, no, I mean, think about this. This is a massive undertaking. It's huge. And even apart from the details of the story, there's two main points that come out of this part of the passage. One is human beings have responsibility for creation. God cares about how we take care of the world and and the creatures in it. It's not a political issue. It's a biblical one. But at the same time, that last part, no suitable companion, no suitable partner was found. And every single creature Adam would name would come across. He'd be left with this reminder of the fact that he's still lonely. He still hasn't found that equal, that partner. What's God up to? I believe that God not only created human beings for connection, created Adam first for connection, for companionship, but God also desires that the core, the foundation of that covenantal relationship is this deep sense of appreciation, gratitude, respect. And apparently it worked because when, when Adam finally saw Eve, he, he broke out in the, in the first poem 
of history. We look, look at it in verse, chapter 2, verse 22. It says, And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, first poem ever, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. How'd you like that? Put that in some Valentine's Day cards this year. Have a Valentine's, baby. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Doesn't quite work anymore, right? But essentially, if you, if you translate the Hebrew more literally, here's what he, he literally says, at last, at last, someone like me, somebody capable of knowing me, like really knowing me, and somebody that I can know. It's an equal. It's a partner. It's a companion. And he goes on to call her woman. I like to think he said, whoa, man. That's cute, right? Kind of. But the image here too is of, of God actually acting as the attendant at a wedding and walking Eve down the aisle. You know, I, I got to officiate a whole lot of weddings. That's my favorite part. It's my favorite part every single time. When those doors open in the back and the bride walks in, I like to look at the bride, but I like to look at the groom as fast as I can to see the look on his face when he sees his bride for the first time. Fellas, do you remember that moment? I'll never forget it. Those big wooden doors in the back. I hadn't seen her yet. Open up and there's my wife. Whoa. I lost it. I cried like a baby. I'm serious. Like our videographer didn't show up, but, the, but for some reason we have audio recording of it. What's <laughs> embarrassing. It was like straight ugly cries. At one point, I literally did this. It's like the walrus cry, right? You know it's bad. This is the picture here. This is the picture. Man, the core, the foundation for the type of love that lasts, it's whoa. It's this deep sense of appreciation. See, God not only longs for us to have a partner, a spouse, a husband, a wife, a companion, but God desires that the core foundation of that relationship begins and stays whoa. Whoa. This deep sense of appreciation and gratitude for that other person. In fact, I just read this study this past week that was done by a group of researchers. They all came from different, different universities, but their goal was to try and identify, like, what's the one thing? I know we could give you a list of, like, seven or eight things, right? But what's the one thing that's behind, like, healthy, rewarding marriages? People who are really satisfied in their marriage, what's the one thing behind that? But they wanted to go about their study a little differently, because see, for about the past 100 years or so, in the world of social science, the assumption was that bad is the opposite of good. And so if they were trying to sort of find out something like this, what they would do is they would go and study a bunch of bad marriages, unhappy people, and then they would try to find out what do they have in common, reverse their findings, and tell the rest of us what not to do. Right? There's plenty of studies like that on marriage. And what these studies had found is that more often than not, couples in unhappy relationships, marital relationships, they, they didn't have a very realistic understanding of who the other person was. Like they couldn't accurately name their strengths and weaknesses. Now this approach, they wanted to do it differently. And so, to, so instead of studying unhappy marriages, what they did is they went and found the outliers. Like people who are deeply satisfied, who've been married longer for 10 years, and they're still loving every minute of it. What's the one thing they had in common? What's the one thing they did that the rest of us don't do? Now their assumption was based on the previous research is that what they would find in these couples is, well, they're probably gonna have a much more down to earth 
understanding and picture of who their other partner was, who their partner was, right? Much more down to earth, much more realistic. What they found though was the complete opposite. These people had an even more unrealistic picture of their couple than the unhappy marriages did. In fact, they were, they were idealistically distorted. They'd have them take these assessments and rate their, their spouse and themselves for, for different character strengths. And every single time, the spouse would rate the other person higher than they had rated themselves. And so a guy might give himself you know, a five in a particular category, but his wife would give him a nine. I mean, more often than not, this is the one thing that separates these healthy marriages is they're idealistically distorted. In fact, one, one researcher said it like this. He says, turns out love is a bit blind. The spouse in a highly rewarding relationship consistently credited their partner with the qualities that they didn't think they had. Wow. So the spouse in a happy marriage looks at their, their partner and sees them better than that person sees themselves. Every single time. They guarded the woe. They're idealistically distorted. Now, before you go dismissing all of this, thinking that it sounds like a bunch, it's too fluffy for you, right? It's not very realistic. Here's the deal. You did this when you first met your spouse. It's exactly what you did. When you first met them, what was that like? Like, I remember, I, I can't stand talking on the phone. Don't call me, right? I don't want to talk to you on the phone. Email me. It's much better, right? Or send a pigeon or something. I don't know. I just want, I don't want to talk to you on the phone. My wife and I had a long-distance relationship. You know how long we talk on the phone? One time we went like six hours. That's, that's ridiculous. You should never talk that long on the phone. And I'd get off the phone with her and I'd come floating into the you know, living room with all my roommates, kind of like, she's amazing, right? This is what it's like when you first meet your spouse. Like you are so enthralled. You're so captivated by them. Like even the things that drive you nuts right now, back then you thought it was endearing. You thought it was cute. They're not lazy. They're just spontaneous, right? This is exactly what you did when you first met them. You're so captivated. Even somebody would come to you, maybe kind of concerned about your relationship, about them, and maybe like bring up a critique. And what would you do? You'd defend them. No, you got it all wrong. You don't really know them. That's not who they are. They're, they're amazing. They're perfect. They're wonderful, right? Because when we first meet, we're all about the woe. We are so captivated by who they are. But then what happens? We get hurt. We get disappointed. We get bored. And slowly but surely, we stop celebrating them for who they are. And all we see them for anymore is who they aren't and what they don't do. We get really good at recognizing that. And all the while, what happens is the woe begins to dissolve. It begins to snuff out. And this, my friends, is where intimacy really begins to break down. And things like bitterness, resentment start to take over the marriage. In fact, John Gottman, I'm going to give you that name, John Gottman. He is considered one of the greatest research psychologists, one of the most, like the renowned expert on marital relationships. If you're going to read a book this week, pick up seven principles for making your marriage work. The reference is in your bulletins. You don't have to write that down. It's there. But this guy has spent the past 40 years, he studied over 3,000 marriages and he watches them for 10, 20 years at a time. Watches them progress. And this guy, he can predict, he can spend 15 minutes with a couple, 15 minutes with a couple and predict within 95% accuracy whether or not that couple's gonna make it or not. 95%, that's pretty good. Wouldn't you agree? 15 minutes. So it's not that hard. There's one thing you have to look for. It's contempt. 
It's contempt. You can see it in the body language. You can see it in how they talk to one another. Name calling, mockery. This crazy need to always correct them in front of people. To get a little detail wrong. No, it wasn't that way. It was actually this way, honey. Right? You can see it. As soon as the spouse starts talking, the other spouse, they're just kind of like this. That's contempt. And he says it comes from these long simmering negative thoughts about a partner. That you continually think about the negative over and over and over again. Contempt. He says it's the number one cause of divorce. Which is crazy to me because I talk to a lot of people and we don't, start, we don't actually reach out for help until something big has happened usually. Right? And a lot of people want to blame like a marriage falling apart on a big thing, a big catastrophe. It was an affair. It was this. It was that. Here's what I'm beginning to learn. That doesn't happen because of the big stuff. That's not me excusing the big stuff. The big stuff happens because of the small stuff. Because we let go of this. And love that lasts, the kind of marriage that lasts, it's all about guarding the woe. That deep sense of gratitude and appreciation for one another. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we protect that? How do we guard it? Well, it begins by developing a habit. Y'all say habit. You know what a habit is? Is it something you do one, 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 once a month? It's something you do all the time, isn't it? It's a habit. It's a discipline. Developing a habit of honor. Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. We'll say that again. Honor one another above yourselves. And that word honor, it means to cherish. It means to value. Essentially, the author is saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to outdo one another in honoring each other. I want you to try to value the other person way more than you value yourself. I want you to try to value them more than they're valuing you. Can you imagine that kind of relationship? Where each couple was so concerned, I'm gonna outdo you in honor today. I'm gonna make you feel way better than I feel. Look, I'm really competitive, my wife, that'd be fun. That sounds great to me. That's not how we tend to function though, is it? We tend to think, you know what? I'm gonna give you the same honor you've given me and I've been keeping track. I got an honor list. In fact, you're 15 points in the hole, so I'm not gonna do anything nice to you until you do 15 things nice for me. Y'all laughing because you do it. I'm gonna give you the kind of honor I saw my mom give my dad. Because that's what I grew up with. Right? No. I'm going to outdo you in honor. I'm going to make sure that my job is to make sure that you know you're loved, that you're valued, that you matter, that you're important. That's my job. No lists, no games. I'm just going to beat you. <laughs> Can you imagine that kind of relationship, the type of satisfaction where, where the per, each couple's sole purpose was concerned, how are you feeling? How are you doing? It'd be pretty beautiful, wouldn't it? Developing a habit of honor. And here, here's why this matters. Healthy marriages and unhealthy marriages, they don't just get there by accident. But they're the result of everyday decisions we make over and over and over and over again. I spent enough time with couples to see that and know it's true. Again, it's not just the big thing that happened. It's all the little things that did or didn't happen before the big thing. That's what it comes down to. That's why I don't buy into it when somebody says, you know what, I just, I just fell out of love. You don't just trip and fall out of love. You just fall out of gratitude and you lose love. 
Instead of recognizing the gift, we get really good at noticing all the things that drive us nuts, all the ways they let us down, all the things that they don't do, so much so that we become blind to all the things that they do. And normally we don't even notice that until after they're gone. Am I right? I don't buy the lie either where somebody says, I've had this one come up to me before too. And they're like, you know, I don't, if I'm honest, I don't know if I've ever loved them. Like, I think I might've picked the wrong person. Chances are there's actually probably somebody else who thinks better. Let's just get that out there on the table. You don't leave what you have until you think something's better down the road. So just be honest first, right? That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Rarely ever is that how it works. What's happened is that person has chosen for a long time to look at their spouse through the lens of negativity. Now, here's what happens. Even the past gets tainted by that negativity. So we don't even see the good times as good anymore. We even tell those stories through the lens of, of something they did wrong back then. You see how dangerous this is? We no wonder it leads to divorce more often than not. You gotta develop a habit of honor, of, of being committed to constantly maximizing our spouse's positive attributes and minimizing their negatives. Because you know what? Here, newsflash, you have positive and negative attributes to your personality. Did you know that? You're not as cool as you think you are. In fact, you can be downright annoying sometimes. It's true. I mean, couples who are in healthy relationships, they minimize that stuff. They maximize the good stuff. And they're able to be, be naked and know no shame. I love that description of the first couple. Completely vulnerable, transparent. They don't have to worry about little, little knives in the back, little jabs, using kids to get at each other. They don't got to worry about that stuff. They don't play those games. They're committed to honoring and valuing one another above themselves. Am I stepping on your toes a little bit? It's been hurting for two weeks, so enjoy. <laughs> but it begins with developing a habit of honor. But here's the last thing I want to talk about. It's also a matter of generosity. Radical generosity, being generous with each other. I'm not talking about your pocketbook. Here's what I mean. Throughout marriage and our relationship, there's going to be a point in time where your spouse fails to live up to your expectations. Their behavior doesn't match with your expectations. There's gonna be a gap in between what you thought they should do, what you wanted them to do, and what they actually did. There's a gap there. How you fill in that gap, how generously you explain their behavior will go a long way into protecting the well. So here's what I mean, ladies. What, like the next time he leaves the toilet seat up and you happen to stumble upon that in the middle of the night, <laughs> His behavior failed to meet your expectations. Am I right? Amen? This is, a, this is a trivial example, but stay with me here. You have a choice in that moment. How are you going to interpret that gap? How are you going to fill it in? And he doesn't respect me. He did that on purpose. Maybe he did. I don't know. Or are you going to think to yourself, you know what? It was an accident. He didn't mean to. Middle of the night. You see what I'm saying? Like th those moments right there, I believe in these kind of things is actually where most marriages are won and lost because we're all gonna do it. We're all gonna let each other down. We're gonna make mistakes. How do we interpret those mistakes when they come home late from work, when they forget to pay the bill, when they do something that doesn't meet your expectations? How do you interpret that in your head? What's the narrative you're telling yourself? Is it more negative stuff? Are you assuming the worst or instead, are you gonna stop and do the, and do the Christian thing, the grace-filled thing, and are you gonna be generous? Or are you gonna believe the best? 
like in our marriage, my wife's here, so I'm a little nervous about this. Can I do this, honey? Thanks, babe. You know what I'm bad at? I'm a slob. She better say amen. Say amen. It's okay. I'm a slob. You all see my closet, right? I'm pretty neat and tidy in most areas of my life. My closet, not the case. My clothes pile up for a couple weeks until we can't get in the closet anymore, and then I have to put them away, right? It's a habit. I need to get over it, right? But when, I, when that happens, when my wife comes in there and she sees that, we've talked about this, she's got an option. She's got a choice. She can interpret that as he doesn't care about me, he doesn't respect me, he just leaves messes everywhere. That's one way to interpret. It would be fair. Or you can interpret it in a different way. And I'm not saying this is the reason, this is the excuse. I'm talking about the, the hard work of what we do up here. Or maybe interpret it this way. When, when he gets home, kids are super excited to see him. I like wearing stretchy pants when I get home, by the way. As soon as I get home, stretchy pants are on. Change my clothes as fast as I can so I can wrestle with the kids because they want to wrestle with daddy. I don't put my clothes away. I know, it's a lame excuse. But you can see how that could be helpful for her. At the same time, one of the things that drives me nuts about her, I love you, baby. <laughs> Takes forever to get ready, in my opinion. Fellas, where are you at? Somebody better say amen. Oh, man. Oh, man. And I, 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 can, I play games up here in my head too, right? I get impatient. I'm down there trying to wrangle the kids until we go out, right? I can, I, can, I can let my brain go in that direction or I can stop and be generous and think, you know what? She's been with three kids all day. They've been hanging all over. She can't do anything without them needing her for something. So God forbid she has 30 minutes with no kids to enjoy getting ready. Is this making sense? Does this show you how it works? How generous are you in these moments where your expectations aren't met? What do you do in those moments when there's a gap? in between what you think they should do and what they actually do. And we all have stuff like this in our marriage. We do, all of us. In fact, I went, I went and asked some people this past week, what are some things that drive you nuts about your spouse? I was shocked how fast people could answer that question. <laughs> like, you got a pen and paper? <laughs> Here's what I heard. You know, things like, they leave the cabinets open, doors open, or they always leave the gas tank empty. I love looking in the crowd, seeing people like do this to each other. Right. You know, or, or beard hairs in the sink. Ladies, I'm sorry, I try real hard. I don't, I don't understand where they come from. Right? I mean, somebody even told me, I can't stand the way that he eats his apple. Like, wow. We have things like that in our relationship. Right? Ways in which they let us down. Sometimes big, sometimes not so big. How generous are you in explaining that? How do you fill the gap? Because I think it has everything to do with guarding the woe. So it's like the next time they're late from work, they forget to pay the bill, they make a mistake, they do something wrong. You know, maybe instead of like beating them over the head with it or making a list, keeping track of all that stuff, what if instead you were generous? What if you were a servant? What if you loved them well? Because here's what I know. A healthy person, that's a key word here though. Y'all hear this. I'm talking about codependence. A healthy person will see that and respond to it. They'll see your generosity as an attempt to move closer. And instead of taking advantage of it, they're gonna reciprocate. If you're having a hard time of, of really getting an idea of what this looks like, look at the cross. Y'all, this is the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, how does God move us forward? 
with control, with critique, with criticism, with lists. He loves us. It's grace. It's generosity. And from what I can tell, it works pretty well. And y'all married folks, we got to get this right. Because here, here's the ultimate deal. You know, Jesus is not some sort of cosmic wedding counselor. Like Jesus doesn't exist for the sake of our marriage. We got to get this straight. Our marriage exists for the cause of Christ. Y'all know that, right? For the cause of Christ. And Jesus says this, man, if you love each other, by this, the world will know that I am who I say I am. Our marriages have the opportunity to show people this Jesus thing's for real. Two people actually can love each other in a way that we long for. We gotta get this right. But here's what I wanna do. We're gonna sing one final worship song together, but here's what I can imagine. There's some people in the room right now. I mean, you're cold. You've hardened your heart. I want you to do me a favor. Just do me this favor. I want you to hold hands right now. I don't care if it's been years since y'all have held hands. Hold hands for me right now. Even if y'all haven't slept in the same room for years, hold hands right now. Because here's what I know. The kind of love that we long for and the kind of posture it takes to really have a love that lasts, it's not something we can manufacture on our own. It's something that we need God to do in us. And so what I want to do, right, I want to pray especially for those couples in this room right now who are cold, your heart's hardened, you shut down a long time ago, you're just trying to make it work for the kids. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray specifically that God will do something down the core of your being, that God will soften you, God will open you up, God will break you apart to give you the kind of posture that's necessary for us to move forward and for this to be a healthy experience for you. Would you have the courage to at least just open yourself up to that? I know the idea of trying to get back to where you were before, it seems insurmountable right now. But if we start here, start with this, I promise you, anything can happen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And right now we ask that the spirit of Christ fall fresh on us. And right now, Lord, there are couples in this room who have, they've shut down, they've quit. Lord, as our savior, we need you to be our savior. We need you to rescue us. We need you to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. And so I pray for these folks specifically, that your spirit moves in them, that you begin to soften them, open them up, break their heart, Lord. Remind them of the gift that they have in one another. Remind them of the hope that they have in you. That ultimately you have the last word and the final say. And there's nothing that you have not overcome. Not even our, our hard-heartedness and our cynicism. So move, Jesus. Move powerfully. I pray for healing and restoration, wholeness in our marriages because strong marriages make a strong church. We need you, Jesus. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.